Chapter Twelve of Peccavi by E. W. Horning. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A fresh discovery. His son was waiting for him at the gate. The man's mad! Cried Sir Wilton with a harsh laugh. What's he been doing? What was that row? Sidney's manner with his father was subtly disrespectful. He seldom addressed him by that name enjoyed arguing with him having the clearer head and argued in slang yet his tongue was as dexterous and plausible as it was always smooth and he was a difficult boy to convict of a specific rudeness there's some method in his madness was his comment on the father's account of the work accomplished under his eyes but he says he's going to build it up again i wonder if he will speculated sidney what by himself yes of course he won't no man could he's a lunatic they were walking home sidney said nothing for some paces then he asked an innocent question it was a little way of his i suppose one man could finish one stone though father sir wilton conceded this and fix it in its place shouldn't you say a gruffer concession then I'm not sure he couldn't do more than you think, said Sidney. The windows might stump him, and the roof would, but he could do the rest. Nonsense, cried Sir Wilton. You don't know what you're talking about. Of course I don't, admitted Sidney readily. That was why I asked about the one man and the one stone. Sir Wilton had not half his boy's brain. The cold-blooded little wretch would boast that he could score off the governor without his knowing it. Sir Wilton's merit was his tenacity of purpose. "'I tell you the man's mad,' he reiterated, "'and if he doesn't take care, I'll have him shut up.' "'A great idea,' cried Sidney. "'But I say, if that's so, we oughtn't to be too rough on him.' "'In any case, I'll have him out of this,' quoth Sir Wilton through his teeth. "'But his mind dwelt on the shutting-up notion.' It really was a great idea, and Carlton himself had given him another. He just would take fresh ground. He sought it that evening by a painful path. Jasper Musk and Sir Wilton Gleed were not friends. They had not spoken for years. Sir Wilton had not been long in the parish before he discovered that Musk had cheated him over the Flint House. The word was much too strong, but some little advantage had no doubt been taken. The quarrel had lasted to the present time, but Sir Wilton had often felt that Musk must hate the common scourge even more bitterly than he did himself, and that he would be a very valuable ally. He was a strong man and solid, the one powerful peasant in the neighbourhood. Unfortunately, sciatica had bound him to his chair from the very day of his daughter's funeral. It would have been comparatively easy to accost the old fellow in the open and to disarm him with instantaneous expressions of sympathy and of indignation. It was more difficult for the lord of the manor to knock at the door of an enemy who was not a tenant, a door opening on the very street, and a door that might be slammed in his face for all Longstow to see or hear. So Sir Wilton went after dinner on a dark night, was admitted without demur, and stayed till after eleven. Next day he went again. He was also seen at the village constable's, and the village constable was seen at the Flint House, and Sir Wilton happened to call once more while he was there. 
The afternoon was rich in developments, and duly murmurous with theory, prophecy, speculation. The schoolmaster was summoned from the school, the saddler from his bench. It was the latter who fetched Tom Ivy from the room that he was adding to his mother's cottage at Sir Wilton's expense. Meanwhile the village whisper became loud talk, but its arrow, shot at a venture, flew wide of the mark. For through all his dark disgrace, as now when the odium attaching to him was gathering like snow on a rolling snowball, from the night of the fire to this eighteenth day of August, there was one thing of which Robert Carton had never been suspected by those who had loved or feared him for a year and a half. Naturally the excitement penetrated to the hall, where Sir Wilton kept dinner waiting, but very properly did not refer to the unsavoury subject at that meal. He was, however, in singularly high spirits, and drank a vast amount of excellent champagne. Yet his own wife left the table in ignorance of what had happened. Now, Lady Gleed was a very particular person, a great stickler for restraint, her own being something strenuous and exotic. She seldom spoke of ordinary things above a whisper, and would have dealt with the village scandal and dumb show if she could. To her daughter she had genuinely preferred never to mention it at all. But Lydia Gleed, it should have been languish, was a more modern type. She was frankly interested in the affair. It had given quite a zest to what would otherwise have been an insufferably dull month for Lydia. The girl had the makings of a perfect woman of society, and yet the end of her second season found her still an unknown distance from the first step to the realization of that ideal. Proposals she had received, but none such as an heiress of her caliber was entitled to expect. She had actually been engaged to an adventurer, but that had only retarded matters. There may have been purer causes. Feeble and inanimate in her everyday life, and constitutionally bored by the familiar, Miss Gleed kept her best side for those whom she knew least, could chatter to acquaintances, the newer the better, was in her element at parties, and out of it at home. Even in her element, however, Lydia never forgot to conceal as much of her appreciation as possible, and would dance angelically with the corners of her mouth turned down, and take like medicine the wine which really did make glad her heart. This August she was feeling particularly blasé and dissatisfied, and the romantic downfall of the rector, whose sermons had kept her awake, was a French novel without the trouble of reading it or the risk of confiscation. Tonight, therefore, it was Lydia who invited Gwyneth to play, and pressed the invitation with a compliment. It was her commoner practice to snub the much younger girl. And it was Lydia who drew her chair close to that of Lady Gleed, and began the whispering to which Gwyneth was made to shut her ears with all ten fingers. Yet for once Lady Gleed was frankly interested herself. But what has he done? The music had stopped. They had not noticed it. The ungrown girl was standing in the middle of the room. She was dressed in white, and her face looked as white as the candlelight, but her eyes and hair the darker and more brilliant by contrast and the eyes were great with a pity and a pain, which were at least not less than the natural curiosity of a healthy child. "'Mind your own business,' said Lydia bluntly. 
but even as she spoke the door opened. "'What's this? What's this?' cried Sir Wilton, who was beaming and good-naturedly concerned to see the tears starting to his brother's child's eyes. "'Whose business have you been minding, little woman?' "'It was about Mr. Carlton,' the child said with a sob. "'I hear everybody saying nothing's bad enough for him, nothing, and I thought he was so good. I only asked what he had done. I won't again. Please, please let me go.' "'In an instant,' said Sir Wilson, detaining her with familiarity, "'you mustn't be a little goose.' "'Let her go, Wilton,' whispered his wife. "'Not till I've told her what Mr. Carlton has done.' And Sir Wilton Gleed beamed more than ever upon the consternation of his ladies. "'But Wilton!' Lady Gleed had risen, and was even forgetting to whisper. Lydia merely looked unusually wide awake, and prettier for once than the child under the chandelier, who was terribly disfigured by her embarrassment and distress. "'If you want to know what Mr. Carlton has done,' said Sir Wilton to his niece, "'it was he who set fire to the church.'" End of chapter 12